So when you remember those shoes, you just had to go back and get it. So you weren't on our feet anymore. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is uh, wonderful to be with you. We've had a great couple weeks around here. Uh, the last couple have been filled with just uh, some excitement and some fun and just the joy of um, looking at some ministries and getting ready even for today with what's going on with the walk uh, the crossroads from 3 to 5. We'll be down there and it's a blessing to be able to see uh, the work taking place and things that are going on from the Child Evangelism Fellowship now at Crossroads and just highlighting some other things that are going on in our area. So the Lord is at work, and for that, you and I get the uh, the blessing, the responsibility, and the accountability to be a part of that in some way, to love on people that have needs, to uh, be light and salt in a dark world, and you all are doing that uh, beautifully. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for uh, the mission and the opportunity to be a part of what God has to do. And, and just, we're going to talk about this today, but I hope... Uh, eventually, you and I just get kind of swallowed up in the idea that there's work to be done and God wants to do it in us and then to do it through us. And that is a fascinating thing to even comprehend for one second that the God of the universe desires to use you and I to build His kingdom, to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ, to be a blessing to other people, and just to be a part of that work, to watch actually miracles take place. Luke 24 is where we will be today. Uh, Peace and power, legacy and promise is the title of today's sermon. We're looking at uh, just the context of, of Jesus as a resurrected Messiah, King, Savior, bodily. And what happens in that time period between that resurrection and Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit uh, comes and dwells believers. So we're looking at what happens when Christ uh, is looking to change, to uh, stiffen, to strengthen, to encourage those that are so broken early on with Good Friday, even even Thursday night as we walk into Good Friday and the crucifixion and the trial and all these other things. If you remember just taking you back into those moments, these were individuals that loved Him dearly, that had given up their whole lives to follow Him. I hope we understand that. Like they had given of their treasure, of their time. Some of them had left their professions to honor Christ as Messiah. And then what happens? He is uh, brought in, charged, tried, and crucified. Boom, boom, boom. And so this time period that we're talking about is hugely important because it changes all of history. So this is not some little detail that we're just kind of walking through because it is the season. You and I sit in a church today because of what went on 2,000 years ago in the sermons that we're talking about between the Passion Week and Pentecost. And so we come in the first week and we talked about this idea. I told you there were two proofs and a principle. The two proofs were the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts. And I told you by the time we finish with, with Pentecost Sunday that everyone that had attended these services should be able to reasonably defend why you believe in a resurrected Jesus. Because we were going to build a case that is actually really rock solid. A resurrected Lord and Savior is the only thing that can account for the change of history, the change of the disciples, where the church is born, and why it is still alive and thriving today in the midst of constant persecution around the world. You and I are a part of something here that is 2,000 years old and there's never been a time that somewhere in the world somebody didn't want to snuff it out. And today, more of the world, the, the, the geographical area, more of the world is hostile to Christianity than is neutral or affirming of it. And I hope you and I do not lose track of that. There are very hostile places to be a Christian, and there are a lot of Christians that are willing to pay big prices to be there and to be a part of God's kingdom. So what you are, look, you and I are looking at, what we're going through, are, is not just a vain uh, attempt at trying to grab the season and run some sermons and make up some things. This is actually foundational to everything we see and believe. And the idea that you and I can sit here this morning and gather as a church and open the Word of God. 
is directly related to what is going on at the time period that we're reading about. So we have two proofs and a principle. What did we talk about on that first week? The first week was simply this. If you want to know God, learn to grieve. And I was struck by that this week because we've got some tremendous uh, prayer requests that have come through. Just via phone, Facebook, whatever else, word of mouth of people that are really suffering. There are loved ones right now that are hurting. One that even hit Facebook of a pastor friend uh, of mine and his family, and they're struggling. And then you get text messages from families within the church that a loved one of theirs is struggling. And you and I are just trying to figure out what to do. Sometimes that prayer and that walk and that love and that care, listen, God meets us in our grief. I remember a man once, once quoting it this way. He said, don't waste your tears. Meaning when something has, has pricked you to the point where the tears start to fall, you run into the throne room of heaven and bow down before God, either physically or in your heart, and take those tears there and look at a loving Heavenly Father and just say, help. I told you, if you want to be close to God, learn to breathe something real and helpful. And God will meet you. He promises He will meet you. Even the Old Testament is filled with those promises prior to the life of Christ and what He exposed for us. The Old Testament is filled with those promises. The broken hearted, God loved. He will not leave them crushed. What did we talk about last week? Fulfilled promises and future hopes. One proof and one principle. We talked all about the Old Testament pointing to Jesus Christ. These fulfilled promises, what do they do? They give us a future hope. So because God has been faithful to do what He said He would do, because He has left no detail undone, you and I can have faith in the rest of your day, tomorrow when you get up, no matter what your job holds, no matter what the stock market does, no matter what happens tomorrow at the doctor's appointment, you and I can look back and say, God has been good, He has been good, He has been good, He did not miss a detail, and He will not miss them moving forward. But you cannot be anchored if you do not have a good account of what has happened before. That's why the Old Testament tells the nation of Israel constantly recount to your children what God has done. Remember when they crossed the Jordan River? What does God command them to do? Each tribe must pick up what? One stone. And what are they to do with that stone when they get to the other side of the river? They're to place them on top of each other and create what we would later call in a hymn an Ebenezer. And what was that for? Because every time a Jewish child walked by that, their parents or their grandparents was required to say, this is what God has done in our past. The Jordan River was at flood stage and God walked us across it. And we built this, our ancestors built this Ebenezer and anchored their faith to the God of the universe. You see, you and I having hope for tomorrow doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes by recounting what God has already done. Starting at the moment of salvation, even starting further than that with the idea of creation. And I told you as one principle last week, to know Him, you need to know Him from Genesis to Revelation. Now I want to recap this with you one time real quick because there's a couple other things in there I didn't have last week. What, where do we see Christ in the Old Testament? This is so very, very important. Because the timing means somebody was somebody was rigging the system for Jesus to, to land 2,000 years ago and start to fulfill these things. Somebody was rigging it from the beginning. Somebody had knowledge. Somebody had a sovereign will. Somebody had something going on. And so as God made promises and Jesus starts to fulfill them, what does that lead us into? It leads us into the idea that he really knows what's going on. And every detail matters. So what happens in Genesis 3? Genesis 3 says uh, God curses the serpent. It says the seed of woman is going to crush his head. You're going, to, you're going to strike his heel. You're going to hurt him. You're going to cause pain. But he is going to crush you. And the idea that it's the seed of woman is amazing. Why? Because the seed of Adam has been tainted. Isaiah 7.14 says he'd be born of a virgin. That the Messiah would come from the seed of woman. Why? Because you and I are of the seed of Adam. And what were we born with? A sin nature. 
I really want to run off on a rabbit trail here, but I'm not going to. We'll save it for some other time. Hosea 11 says this. He would come out of Egypt. Well, that's a huge problem. Why? Because he was born in Bethlehem. That is also a prophecy. So what happens? Caesar Augustus does what? Goes to kill the children. And so Mary and Joseph are warned in a dream to what? Flee to Egypt. Oh, man. Don't you love details? So where does Mary and Joseph come back when the angel tells them it's safe? But he's still born in Bethlehem. And he's still called out of Egypt. And God is still on the throne. And he laughs at those that would try to hurt or destroy his plans. A Messiah was coming. The wise men, the astrologers of the day, or those that knew scripture, or whatever it was this wise man was, they knew a prophecy was coming. That's how they know to go. So they were already reading signs that God had placed in for them. So they land here, and God says, get out of here because you're going to be in trouble. They flee to Egypt, and then they come back. That's Hosea 11. How about Amos 8, verse 9? On that day, I will make the sun go down at noon. On what day? Or I will make it dark in the middle of day. What day is that? God's wrath poured out on the world in Jesus Christ. From noon to three. Extra biblical accounts talk about darkness over the land. God talked about it in Amos. How about Psalm 23? I'm really not awful what I'm doing right now. All this stuff is really, really important. How about Psalm 22? I'm sorry. Pastor Don made a comment one time. I've never lost track of it. Psalm 22 is what? The Hill of Calvary. 900-ish years before Jesus would be born. Psalm 23 is what? The valley of the shadow of death. This blew my mind. I don't know if Pastor Don saw this or he read it from somebody else, but whoever picked it up was a genius. What happens when you have a valley? You have one mountain on the front, the hill of Calvary, and then you have a mountain on the back. And what does Psalm 24 point to? The king of glory. Who will ascend the mountain? The king of glory may come in. The hill of Calvary, the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 24, all three of these psalms are about Jesus Christ. I read Psalm 53, or Isaiah 53 two weeks ago. Let me read Psalm 22 to you today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I, but I find no rest. Verse 3, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, and our, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am the worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. One of the things you and I don't understand about the context of what's going on is when Jesus utters these sentences, the Jewish culture would run the whole song through their mind. So Jesus doesn't just try out on the cross, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 to a crowd that would know exactly what he was saying. Does that give you chills? Because it could. It should. On the cross, one of the last things Jesus does is point to the Old Testament so that they will see God's hand at work in all of this. All who see me mock me. What did they do to those that were crucified? They stripped them naked, hung them on a cross, and uh, until they died, the passerbys did what? Stood on them and mocked them and called them cursed. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. What was one of the refrains yelled at from the crowd? If he trusts in God, let God deliver him. Remember? Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. But not far from me, for trouble is near. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no help. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. Surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax as they pierced it with the spear, and it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my mouth, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. The company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For, uh, and for my clothing, they cast lots. If you know the story and you've read the gospel, much like Isaiah 53, you know exactly who Psalm 22 is pointing to. And Jesus quotes it from the cross when it's agonizing to grab breath and he must push himself up using the spikes in his feet to breathe. He spends those last moments not cursing those, not yelling at those. He spends those last moments quoting scripture that is 800-ish years written before his life and his death. Amazing. Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out my spirit when they look upon me on whom they have pierced. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. You and I have a hard time understanding that because we see it with Western eyes instead of Middle Eastern eyes. We've not been trained in what to look for, but the whole Old Testament points to Christ. We should love it and extract everything out of it that we can. The same God in Genesis, the same God in Judges, the same God in Joshua is the God you and I serve. Look at Luke 24 with me as we go a little deeper into this today. I told you early on we would see a pattern of things happen as Jesus started to interact with the disciples. And, and true to today's form, we see that pattern again. Luke 24, starting in verse 36. We've already gone through the first part of 24 in the last couple of weeks. Starting in verse 20, uh, 36, it says this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do you have, uh, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That is I, that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Verse 40. And when they had said, uh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? Verse 42. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Pray with me this morning. Lord, we need you. Holy Spirit, you have taken up residence in all of those that have called upon the name of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Open our minds to understand Scripture. Not just what they say, not just what they mean, not what they mean to me, but what they actually mean. And then help us to apply them properly to whatever is next. There are so many things going on in the lives of those that are here that you love, that you have well. God, some of them need to see peace. Some of them need to see action and obedience. Uh, some of us need a fresh touch from the God of the universe just to know that you're paying attention, that you love us, and that our grief and our tears are not being poured out in vain. So open our minds to the Scriptures. The one that wrote them through the hands uh, of, of men early on. Do for us what you did for them. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love and your care and your attention. Thank you for opening the minds of our mothers and fathers before us that have, that have given us the scripture, given us good teaching over and over and over again, pointing to you. Make us people like that too. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 48. You are witnesses to these things, and behold, 
I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they continually and were continually in the temple blessing God. So we see as Luke finishes up this part of, of basically uh, his two-book series, if you want to read the rest later today, go into Acts chapter 1, and you'll read this story again in a little more detail. It's amazing. Luke writes two books, both to the same person. Acts chapter 1, he goes back into and he restarts where he was at just to get the context, and then he keeps moving forward. But when you and I uh, read the end of this passage in Luke chapter 24, what do we see here? We see, number one, Jesus appears again. And I love this. He looks at him and he says, peace to you. God repeatedly, all throughout Scripture, and if we're paying attention, He will repeat this to you and I even today. In your prayer life, through the Word of God, as you and I read, we will see and we will hear what? Peace to you. The repetition of this command needs to be brought out almost every day. Do not fear. Do not worry. These are things that that are not there because life is easy. Do you understand that? Raise your hand if you understand that. God doesn't tell people, be courageous, don't be worried, don't be fearful. He doesn't say that because life is easy. Why would he say that? Because it's chaos. Your mind and your heart and my mind and my heart are just thrown about. We live in this world where, where sin has power and Satan has dominion and there are uh, uh, forces out there that are working and they're working to hurt you and I. They're working to divert us or whatever else. And so these commands are given not because life is easy. The people that stand up and preach the Word of God with any kind of prosperity spin set people up for failure. And then I give my money and I give my time. Why am I not healthy? Why am I not wealthy? What is going on? They, they, are, they are perverting principles in Scripture. And they're hurting people because of it. They create this atmosphere that like the moment you get saved or the moment you get serious, life gets easy. And there's no more tears and there's no more worry and there's no more frustration. That is not the case. God repeats over and over and over. Be courageous. Be strong. Don't be fearful. Don't worry. And when Jesus shows up in this moment, He is getting ready to alleviate all of their fear, but He shows up with peace. The first thing he says. Some of us would have shown up in that room. Right? I could have just terrified that. It'd been the perfect opportunity. Like you're gonna make it all better in like three seconds. It's like harassing your children, right? Like we're gonna fix this in a minute, but for the next five to ten seconds, I'm gonna have a good time. Some of us would have been like that. Jesus just walks in and he says, Peace. Peace. He's loving them well. And he's giving them a command that you and I are giving constantly. Again, not because life is easy. It's because it's hard. He wouldn't tell you to be courageous. He wouldn't tell you to be strong. He wouldn't tell you not to worry. He wouldn't command those things if he didn't know you and I were going to need that admonition every day. And so Jesus comes in and what does he do? He gives them the message of Scripture. Peace. Peace. Look at verse 37. But even a command doesn't always do it. What do I mean by that? Well, so he makes the command, and then he enters in with some proof. What is he looking at them and saying? Come here. Touch me. This is real. God initiates access. Jesus initiated access. He did not teach them, die, be resurrected, and go straight to heaven and just expect them to believe. Don't you love that? Because John could have easily, just like he could have done in the garden with Adam and Eve, I told them and they didn't listen. Forget it. Leave them on their own. They'll figure it out. He could have done that. He didn't. God comes into the garden, Adam, and he calls for Adam. Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding? Well, we're hiding because we knew we were naked. And he said, well, who told you you were naked? 
This place is perfect. Jesus does the same thing. Because what does he reiterate? Every time he talks to the disciples, this is what I told you was going to happen. And instead of leaving them in their grief, instead of leaving them powerless, he comes back again and again and again. Forty days of time, he makes sure they see him, touch him, eat with him. Not once, but on repeat. He gives access. So he does it again here. Come Right? They were startled. They were frightened. They thought they saw a spirit. And he says to them, why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? What's going on? And I love this. Why do doubts arise in your heart? Like when I read that, I see almost like a wave. Right? Like they heard the stories and the doubt was pushed down a little bit. And then a couple days went by and it started to creep back up. And then they saw him and so the doubt dissipates and then a couple of days later they haven't seen him in a while right like it's not 40 days straight this is intermittent okay so the doubts kind of come back up don't judge them that's me and you right one day we've got it all together one day the lord has answered our prayers one day it's been a sweet time of fellowship between you and him and the holy spirit and you feel like man i'm going to go out i'm going to tackle hell with a squirt gun and the next day you wake up and we can barely get out of bed because the doubts have either come up or the swell of things is so big that you and i just feel like we're drowning don't judge what's going on here as, as like we do the old testament when we're like man i can't believe the nation's vision those people were just ridiculous Right about this, complain about this. There's no water, there's no food. The man is horrible, Lord. It's so mundane, it's so uh, uh, constant. It's just, and can you imagine? And yet, you and I need to be careful. So, in this moment of time, what is going on here? They are struggling. They've seen Jesus before this, but he appears again. Well, they saw him already and they're still struggling? Yes. Because life is hard. And our flesh is weak. And the decisions they're making right now, hear me and hear me clearly, the decisions the disciples are making and getting ready to make in the coming weeks are life and death. You see why the Lord would be so patient with them? Why? Because they can fold back into the Jewish community and be safe. They could fold into the Roman community and be safe. They could fold away and just walk away from this Jesus thing and be safe. Or they can lean into a Messiah that was just massacred and know that his fate would be theirs because that's what he said would happen. Is there any reason why their faith and their doubts are coming up and then arriving this way? But truth, verse 38, truth is going to conquer fear. That's why Jesus asked them questions. I told you before, don't be lazy thinking. Seek out answers to questions. God does the same thing. Why? Because when he asks questions, when Scripture asks questions, what happens? You and I have to verbalize that truth. And sometimes instead of answering things in the quiet of our heart or in our mind, we need to say them out loud. We need to hear them. We need to, to, to etch ourselves into those truths. And sometimes you do it better by speaking them out loud. And so what does Jesus do? He makes them face their fears by asking a question. They have to verbalize these things. They have to take them from internal. And they have to bring them externally. Why? Because the truth is going to meet them there. But they have to understand what they're struggling with. And how God and how Christ is going to touch them. Fear consumes and doubts arise because we've not made every thought submit to the truths of God, the promises fulfilled by Him, or shared in the testimonies of others. Listen, some of you uh, are going through something right now, and one of the things that is making it so hard is because it's been a long time since you have remembered God's blessing, provision, protection over something, or it's been a long time since you had somebody else share their blessing with you. Does that make sense? And I strongly believe sometimes in the Christian faith, you and I have to borrow a little faith from somebody else. Like we're down, and we're hurting, and we're low, and we're exhausted, and I need somebody close enough to me to remind me of God's provisions. 
And so some of us right now, we struggle so hard and for so long on certain things because it's, 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 we've not taken those thoughts captive like Scripture tells us to do. Every thought that comes in here must be taken captive and it must be sifted through the truths of Scripture, the promises of Scripture, what God has said. It has to be sifted. What gets through gets to touch your heart. Everything else has to be disregarded. If you thought it yourself, you have to repent of it. Lord, I'm sorry, I should not have thought that. I should not have said that to myself. It is not true. I have to repent of that. If it's been said to you or you've caught it at a glance, you just disregard it, shove it, and make it walk away. It has no place in your heart because it doesn't match what God's Word says. Some of you younger ones would realize this in the context of how people talk to you at school. Is there a bully at school that says horrible things to you that one story a while back from a friend that told me what was going on in their school, and it was amazing the amount of vitriol that could be tossed about by children so very, very young. So for some of you young kids in here, I need you to understand, this is something you have to practice right now. Somebody says something to you, and it's not something God would agree with. You have to remove it. You have to bind it mentally and cast it out. It is not what God would say. My Heavenly Father loves me. I am accepted. I am part of His family. I have people that love me. I am not a loser. I am not a loner. I am not an outcast. I am not broken. I am not unfixable. I am not this. I am not that. I am a prince or a princess of heaven. And Jesus Christ loved me so much that He chose to die for me. To take my death. We need to bind what enters into our mind so it doesn't hit our heart. We need to remember God's promises and we need to recount them not only as individuals but as families. As the Lord bailed you out of a situation where you're looking at something and you're staring down the barrel of something that just looked like it was going to be a total disaster and you were just worried to death about it and then when it happened you figured out God had your best interest in heart. He was removing you from one situation you know, my analysis story that lands us back in West Virginia after living uh, 10 years in Lynchburg by ourselves. We had just had Levi. Uh, we, were, we were just, the story leading up to that was just utter chaos. It was a bad decision on my part. It looked like it was going to be a train wreck, and it really was. And yet, as we look back, we see that God's hand was in so many things and so many pieces. He was blessing and working and loving us well. He brought us back home. He gave us a church filled with people that we love and that love us. And he put our lives together, uh, back together financially through ways that the world would not understand. You know, her and I were married at 21. We did not have a college education between the two of us. We both had good jobs. About eight years in, I decided to quit my job and try to take a business. In the middle of all that, I was not shrewd. I was not wise. I was gullible. And we got hammered. We ended up coming home and resetting everything. Lost at home. I quit a good job. And the Lord knew what he was doing. Do you remember his blessings? Do you remember when he came through? We moved to West Virginia in 2009 in the middle of an economic collapse. That's the wrong way. People don't move to West Virginia even in 2021. That's a shame when we say that kind of chuckle, but it's really not funny, but you understand the point. We moved to West Virginia in an economic collapse. And in six months, God had put our life back together. When's the last time you told a story like that to your family, to your children? Why is our faith so weak? Because we don't remember when God has blessed us and taken care of us. We forget. Now, parents, what happens when your children forget all the good stuff you've done for them? Give me a word that we hate using. Ungrateful? Not that one. How about this one? Soil? Did that hurt? Did you do the same thing to God? Do we not remember all the good stuff that he has poured out and all the moments that he has taken care of us? And all, all throughout eternity, we're going to learn about other things we didn't even know about. 
hey, remember when you did that stupid thing? Yeah, well, here was that angel, and here was that angel, and they were kind of keeping you on the road and making sure you didn't do anything super stupid. Like you were in the extra stupid, but you weren't super stupid yet. So, right? Like, he's going to do, like, we're going to learn that for all of eternity. But right now, just the things you can see, just the things that you know, just the things where God would put his fingerprint on it and said, that was me. Do you remember that? Have you told anybody else about that? Ask questions and answer them properly. Jesus does that right now. Verses 39 to 40. The Lord encourages questions, exploration, and the expectation of access. Why does Jesus come into the room? Not because he wants to be solo or silent or aloof or away from them. He walks into the room again and again and again because he wants them to have access to him. You and I serve the same God. He will meet you. He initiates it. The Holy Spirit pushing on you is that initiation. Come to me. Come to me. Jesus will look at them and say, Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Why? Because my way is easy. My burden is light. That's the promise. God makes and makes and makes. Verses 41 to 43, what's going on there? Well, we're looking at that. this passage, and while they were still disbelief for joy, I love this, it changes. It changes. Why can they now not believe it? Because it's too good. Come on. When's the last time you had a blessing like that roll in? I hope you and I will visit this moment a little bit more in our lives as we think about salvation, as we think about the grace of God. Every time we hear that word, grace, every time we think about the cross, it's why we do celebrations at certain times of the year. Why? Because when you wake up on Monday morning and you've got to get back to work, it's hard to take those moments and kind of pull them aside and have the time to reflect on the goodness and the grace of God. So what do we do? We do things like Thanksgiving and we do things like Christmas. We do things that the Old Testament Jews did. They were minded them by building in celebrations. Passover week. May you and I find ourselves the next Passover week in a very somber and celebratory mindset. Why? Because God's grace is taking us to a place where it's so good we can't believe it. There's fear and doubt. Jesus comes in. Touch me. Hang out. Here's my hands. Ghosts don't do this. And now there's a different kind of disbelief. One out of, this is too good. This is too amazing. He still can't believe. May you and I get more frequent with that kind of glory and goodness in God. Verses 44 to 45. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I told you it's the same thing over and over and over. Jesus wants to show them who he is. He doesn't preach to them another sermon. He takes them back to what they already know and says, There I am, there I am, there I am. And then he opens their mind to understand it. And so it's the same thing. Jesus points to the past to encourage their present and to strengthen their futures. He does it again and again and again. For whatever reason, the message he was preaching was cloudy or hidden, or it was just too amazing to comprehend without divine intervention. But he wipes all that away in this moment. This group that has ears to hear, he is now going to open their heart and walk them through where he was in the law, prophets, and the Psalms. So he has taken them back again to the Old Testament and said, let me show you where God was at work. Verses 46 and 47, what do we find? This is a worthy mission. The story of Scripture in those passages is summed up in one long sentence. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. If you want to know what the Bible is about in one sentence, there it is. Luke 24, right? What verse was that? 46. What is Scripture about? Jesus told them. This is what it's all about. I am going to come. 
I'm going to suffer, I'm going to rise, and that message needs to be preached everywhere you go. The good news of the gospel. Repentance of sin, forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in that order. Repentance is the first sign that forgiveness is happening. You cannot be saved if you do not agree that you're a mess. I could not be saved if I did not agree that I was a mess and needed a Savior. And not only that, like, I'm a mess, like that's a real kind of nice term. Like, if I didn't believe that I was a sinner, if I didn't believe that I had committed treason against God and what I really deserved was not a, a pat on the backside so my behavior was corrected, what I really deserved was hell eternally because He is that holy and I'm that wicked. So when I say a mess, that's what I technically mean because that's what Scripture tells us to all. That kind of repentance shows that forgiveness is happening. We repent of our sin. And the Lord brings about so much more. Verse 48, in the work of His glorious message, what happens after 48? Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The work of this glorious message would be done by you and me. He's going to sin. I cannot wait to get to the Holy Spirit. Cannot wait. I keep pushing it back. Like we're, not, it's not there. we're not there yet. We're still talking about this. We're not there yet. We're still talking about this. I cannot wait to get to that story with you. And what God does and the symbolism that is there. But prior to that, Jesus promises them not that the Holy Spirit is come. He told them that in John 14. Do you remember? They want to send a helper. I'm going to send another helper of the same kind. When you look at the words, that's what it means. Another helper of the same kind, meaning he was going to send God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was coming to seal us up for the day of redemption. He was coming. But before then, I love this passage because Luke and Jesus, somewhere in there, just calls him power. Power. What happens after that? I will remind you that verse 51, power hasn't come yet, but this message and this truth is powerful enough to buoy them until it gets here. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Verse 49, what happens? What was concealed in the Old Testament will now be revealed in the fulfillment of Christ's early life. What was concealed in the Old Testament was, once again, God was going to dwell with men. A part of those passages are, are futuristic in the idea of what happens when God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because Jesus sits on the throne and you and I have access. That is unbelievable. But another piece of it is simply this. They didn't understand that men and women would one day be of God. If God did not want that to happen, there would have been no reason to tear the temple cloth, the shroud. There would be no, no reason to tear that curtain into and open up the Holy of Holies. Why? Because in a very short time, believers were going to be the Holy of Holies. You and I, in essence, in the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, you and I were going to be the peace where God's presence resided. And what was concealed in the Old Testament will be revealed in the New. What the Father would have given out of obligation to the first covenant of law and obedience, which we could not do, which we did not do, what he would have been obliged to do if mankind could have followed through on their end, he is getting ready to do how? He's going to do it through Christ. Because Jesus will now send through the grace of his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his life-changing resurrection, and I love this, and his constant and eternal advocacy. He's our lawyer right now. He's advocating for you and I. When the enemy comes in and he whispers horrible things about you, there is our advocate, Jesus Christ. 
who stands there to make a defense. That one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine. They're in the blood. They've been bought by me. You see them through me. Like the power of a good attorney in our culture is something we see every day. Why? Because what happens when rich people get in trouble? They hire what? A good attorney. And what happens after that? A lot of things that a lot of people don't care about, but it is the way the system is built. I always say that to say this. Do you understand the power of a good attorney? Do you want the person who's seasoned and tenured and hopefully never lost a case? Or do you want the new guy that comes in or gal with pushing their glasses up and their books falling all over the place and they just graduated school? Like, I know everybody's got to get to start somewhere, but if I'm in trouble and I get to choose, right, I'll take the one with a couple W's. Your attorney right now in heaven, sitting there before absolute perfection, is Jesus Christ. He advocates for you even in this moment. So what was concealed in the Old Testament would now get opened up in the New Testament that people would actually see what was going on. And it is through, it is through what Jesus has done that brings about all the blessings. There's a power in and there's a power of His presence. And finally this. One proof and one principle this morning. We're building a case, right? We're building a case. Two proofs, one principle the first day. One proof, one principle last week. One proof, one principle this week. The experience of the resurrected Jesus changed these disciples. And it changed history. Now we're going to go into the depth of how much it changed them in the future. We're not there yet. I just want you to see that those people were changed. In verses 50 to 53, what do we see? Well, they worshiped Him. They returned to Jerusalem, which I want you to understand is obedience. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and stay there until they were clothed in power. They didn't leave and go somewhere else wherever they wanted to go on a mission that was obviously from God. They could have went somewhere else and they could have spread the message and they would have been disobeyed. They worshipped Him. They obeyed His command. What else did they do the rest of that week? What else did they do those next uh, ten days? They were uh, they did it with great joy. I love that. Their personality, their whole character, their whole outlook had been totally changed. They had run into a resurrected Christ. The Holy Spirit's not even involved yet. Understand what I'm telling you. This is just the power of running into a resurrected Christ. They did it with great joy. When's the last time somebody diagnosed you with somebody with great joy? When's the last time somebody diagnosed me with great joy? And they found themselves constantly going to work God's work and God's house together. If you and I are to experience this real, if we experience this real and resurrected inside, our lives will be changed too. There's your principle. If you run into a resurrected Jesus, as they come to play this morning, if we wind down, as we get ready to start this process of application, if you have run into a resurrected Christ, your life should be different. And you've got one or two choices if it's not. The first choice is this. You really didn't need him. You really didn't bow the knee and bow the heart. You really did not mean it when you uttered whatever prayer somebody begged you to pray. You didn't mean it. You didn't mean it. If your life has not changed, there's option one. Here's option two, Christian. You prayed it and you meant it. But somewhere along the way, you lost your first love. You got your eyes off of whatever God was calling you to do. You took your eyes out of Scripture. You took your heart out of Scripture. You, you untethered yourself from these things that God would push us, that the fruit of the Spirit wasn't being produced in your life anymore. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These things are absent. The other option is simply this. You have to be miserable right now. To have experienced Him, to know Him, 
And then to be uh, pulled away from that or to walk away from that is something that grieves the believer. The Holy Spirit in you right now is just saying something's wrong. Something's wrong. There's not a sweetness here. Something's wrong. I am begging you this morning. If that is you, you say, man, I know I am a Christian. And those that are listening at home, the same thing. I rarely do this at our church because I believe our people know the Lord and they want to serve Him and they want to honor Him or they wouldn't be here listening to me yammer on. But if today is the day that you're figuring out, I claim to be something that there is no evidence for. Now go back to the courtroom analogy. If you were to be taken to trial and the charge against you was you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to even convict you? I don't know who said that first, but I'm going to tell you what I read this week. I read an article that says, uh, Born Again Believers or Christians of other denominations, ours included, more than 50% believe that sex outside of marriage is okay. That's the Gospel Coalition or Church of the Women's. That is a study right now. There are a lot of people that claim to know God and wear His name. But they don't even care to pull up the most basic things of what Scripture has to say. And Jesus didn't tell a group of people that he was going to look at those and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and didn't I do that? Jesus did not tell them that story that he was going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because everybody that was a Christian was a Christian. If you and I are forming a pen with no Scripture attached, that blessing of God and marriage has been cursed by our culture. And yet, instead of the church drawing a line and digging their heels in, we have just gone with the culture and let it roll over us over and over and over. That is just one example of a modern Christian that cares nothing about what God's Word has to say. And I just took that as a tremendous warning when I read that this week. Some people that claim the name of Christ do so with a small C or they, they worship an idol named Jesus with a small J because if they don't care about his word or what he has to say then they are either lost or as as, as broken as the world has ever seen so I'm asking you today to do business with the Lord one truth and one principle when that group of people ran into a resurrected Jesus they left change when you ran into it did you leave change did not beg you do business with God. Those that are listening at home or wherever else, do business with the Lord and figure out what's going on. Did you know Him? Did you love Him? Were you close to Him? And then did you deviate? Or were you five, six, seven, or eight and just pray a prayer and the rest of your life you just been checking that box and calling yourself a Christian and yet you don't care about anything God cares about? Would you stand with me this morning in this way?